Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here in the house. Good morning to those of you who are in Simpson Hall this morning, as well those of you who are joining us online. Uh, so glad that you're worshiping with us together this morning. Hey, as you know, we are in a teaching series. We are in the Book of Romans. The series is called The Unveiling. And uh, if you have access to the internet right now, I get you encourage you to go to the sermon notes, thecrosspointchurch.ca/notes, and you can look at them there and follow along and track along. Uh, of course, if you have a Bible, digital, paper, or otherwise, I don't know what the otherwise would be. Maybe you've memorized the whole thing. But if you have access to a Bible, Romans chapter five, we're going to be landing there this morning as well. Uh, hey, Sp- thanks, Spencer, for uh, uh, reading the scripture for us this morning. Uh, looking forward to when you guys can be back with us. Miss you in Sydney, and uh, well done. Great job. Um, hey, uh, this morning, we're looking at a very interesting text. As a matter of fact, you might even find, as you heard it, and if you've read it before, that it's actually a difficult-to-follow text. Uh, as somebody who writes uh, uh, sorry, who not just writes papers, but marks papers for college students and for graduate students. Uh, this is an absolute disaster, what Paul has written here. I mean, because, I mean, he starts with a fragmented sentence, and then he, he seems like he's repeating himself all the time and saying the same thing again and again and again, right? And then finally, he picks it up again at the end, and he, you know, lands the airplane, as it were. So it is a challenging text, and so we're not going to walk through it kind of chronologically this morning. Instead, we're going to look at it in a very different way. Uh, but as we get into the text this morning, I want to I want to ask you a question. Um, first of all, have you ever heard the phrase before? He's not my type. Heard that phrase? Yeah. Or 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 she's not my type, right? It seems as people we have a type for everything. So let me give you an example. Um, what kind of car do you like to drive? How about a compact car? How about a fast car? What about a reliable car? (laughs) Yeah, I can remember that. That's the car I grew up with in my family. I can remember laying down in the back of that thing, looking out the windows. This is the days before seat belts, and everybody had to bubble wrap their children and wear hockey helmets just to go to the mall. It was a very different day I grew up in. I remember those days. Anyway, uh, let me ask you a different question. What kind of a house do you like to live in? How about a modern house? What about a tiny house? What about a comfortable house? I mean, how about you? What is your type? What is your type of car? What is your, what is your type of house? Now, you've probably looked at one of those houses and said, yeah, that's not my type this morning. I don't know. Maybe you like the cluttered house and it's very cozy for you. Uh, and sure, I mean, we could talk about other different categories today. I mean, I could talk about what kind of meals do you like to eat? What kind of shows do you like to watch? What kind of shoes do you like to wear? I don't know what your answer is for those questions. But we know what we like. We know what we don't like. And we can all definitely say, that's not my type. All right, so why are we talking about this this morning? What is the point? Well, because I'm hoping that by the end of this morning, you will be able to say with confidence... That's not my type. You see, the guiding verse in today's passage in Paul, in verse 14, and you'll notice that Paul says this. He says that Adam was a type 
of the one who was to come. You know, that word type in the original language, it means stamp. It means, it means mark. Uh, if you were to press your signatures into a piece of hot wax or into a piece of clay, you would leave your type, you would leave your mark in the clay. It was like the original. It looked like the original. It had the same pattern. And what Paul is doing here today is he's using a, a method of interpreting the Old Testament that was very, very common in his day. And it was something that was known as typology. By using typology, the New Testament writers would look back into the Old Testament and they would notice a pattern, something that corresponded with what was God, God was doing in their present day, in their present day and age. So past persons or events in the Old Testament were patterns or were types of similar persons or events in the New Testament. And almost all of these, every one of these types centered around the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so what Paul is doing today is using typology, and through typology, he's saying this. He says, Adam was a type of Christ. He is the historical pattern for Jesus. He is the prototype for the one who would eventually come. Now, there were, there were several patterns that linked Adam to Jesus, and the most obvious, of course, in the text is that Adam was the head over all of humanity. So he represented humanity. He was the progenitor of the human race. And because, what happened, and because of this, because of this, what happened to Adam would eventually happen to his human family. And of course, this sets the pattern for Jesus, who is the head over a new humanity. And this hum new humanity includes all of those people who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus represents this new humanity, and so he also sets the course for what will happen to this new humanity. So this connection between Adam and Jesus, it's so strong. It is so strong that Paul actually goes so far as to call Adam the first Adam and to call Jesus the last Adam. You can read about this later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So everybody born into this world is under the first Adam. But every person who is born again through Christ is under the last Adam. And the question that echoes through this passage this morning is this. What is your type? So, so I want to look at each of these in turn, and, and we're going to start with the first Adam, and then we're going to move on to the last Adam. And I hope you'll begin to see this pattern emerge, both in its symmetry and its asymmetry, both in how they are alike and how they are unalike. And you get to decide by the end who gets to be your type. So let's start with the original Adam. You'll notice that Adam and Jesus both had the same opportunity. They both had the same opportunity to respond to God's authority. But Paul says the biggest difference between them is how each of them responded. The first Adam, Adam, responded with disobedience. The last Adam responded with obedience. You notice throughout the passage that Paul here is talking about the trespass of Adam. And he repeats it a number of times, and he repeats it, and he plays it against the free gift of Jesus. Now, the word trespass, it's actually a legal term. Uh, we don't use it a lot. We, really, we think about if somebody walks on my lawn, they're trespassing. But that's not the, original, the, the meaning of the original word. The original word meant someone who broke an actual law. So you could only trespass when there was an explicit rule that was being broken. So the question then is, what was Adam's trespass? Well, to answer that, we need to go back in the story a little bit. We need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And you might remember the story. God created Adam and Eve. He set them up as his stewards over creation. They were his representatives. They were his image bearers. He placed them in the garden. He let them loose. He says, hey, have fun. You know, make babies, create stuff, fill the earth, right? 
But he also gave them one very specific commandment. What was that one commandment? Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this wasn't a a vague hypothesis that God was presenting to Adam. It was a specific commandment with a specific result. Do this and you will die. Don't do this and you will live. What happened after that? Well, we know the story. Eve struck up a conversation with the serpent. The slippery snake called into question God's commandment. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent had them believe. Hey, you know what? God, God's holding out on you. You're not going to die. As a matter of fact, if you eat of this, you're going to become like God. So what did Adam and Eve do? They both ate from the tree. They were co-conspirators against God. But Adam, as the representative head of the human race, trespassed against God's commandment because he knew what that commandment was. So what was the consequence of this trespass? Well, this brings us to verse 12 in today's text. And here's what it says. It says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, now this verse in in Romans 5 is essentially a summary of what Paul has already written. If you go back to chapter 1 and you read the end of chapter 1, this is what Paul is talking about here. But what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that this one trespass of Adam, it has affected everything and everyone. And we are all branches on Adam's family tree. And as a result of this, we've been infected by sin. Paul says this in verse 19. He says, we were made sinners. So essentially, we are Adam's life played on repeat again and again and again. We are still trying to play God. We are still believing God is trying to hold out on us. We're still trying to live life on our own terms. We sin because we are sinners. Now, this sin infection that we have... It's both powerful and it's pervasive. It's powerful because it it has this controlling influence in our lives. But it's pervasive because it kind of affects every aspect of our lives. You know, I think most of us have asked the question, why why is it that I do the things I do? Why is it that that I find it so difficult sometimes to change? And these are questions that that Paul is confronting head-on in the book of Romans. And Paul is inviting us, each and every one of us this morning, he's saying, hey, I want you to come to terms with some really, really bad news. And it's sobering news. It's it's pessimistic news. It's sad news. And yet it's true. And the news is this. Adam is who we are. Now, now, sometimes, you know, when, when I'm skeptical, skeptical about this truth, you know, maybe I've been hearing too many abstract social theories, I simply need to look at the concrete evidence in my own life. And I discovered that the apple has not fallen too far from Adam's tree. Let me give you some example. Uh, first of all, sin hijacks my heart and mind. 
You know, I, I, I turn on the news, I listen to a windbag politician that I disagree with. You ever done that before, right? So I, I start pronouncing judgment on him. I make snide remarks. I shout my raka, and I pray that he gets what he deserves. I, I mean, I'm like those, those two disciples when they were with Jesus that they want to call down fire on an unhospitable village. That's what I'm like. And I wonder in that moment, oh, you know, what's going on in my heart? Well, it's Adam lurking in the shadows of my soul. But sin doesn't just do that. Sin also commandeers my actions. I mean, all it takes, all it takes is one late night with access to that potato chip bag. I mean, my mind says to me, bet you can't eat just one chip. And my body says, game on, bro. Before I know it, I'm shoveling chips like an automaton. And 10 minutes later, I'm lying there in a junk food coma with t-shirt covered in crumbs. And I ask myself the question, whoa. Whoa, where did that come from? Well, it's called a genetic predisposition. Adamitis at its finest. You know, sin also sometimes taints my best attempts to do good. I mean, I've given money to churches and to charities, and I've asked the question, what's in it for me? My supposed sacrificial generosity is often tainted by selfish gain. I've blown my trumpet while given. I've had a bad hair day while fasting. I've done the humble brag. I've signaled all of my virtues for all the world to see. And sure, yeah, I told myself I was only trying to encourage others to do the same. But meanwhile, I'm secretly looking and counting the likes and the shares on my social media accounts. Hey, what is that? It is the blood of Adam coursing through my veins. Listen, friends, we are not basically good people who sometimes do bad things. We are basically flawed people who repeatedly reveal our sinfulness through revealed acts of sin. That's who we are. Now, I, I, I think most of us know just how countercultural this idea is, right? Because the word sin has essentially been, been removed from our cultural lexicon, it's not polite dinner conversation. It's abhorrent water cooler conversation at work. Nobody talks about sin around the office. Sin is the language of street preachers, of confessionals and revival meetings, but not as progressive, sophisticated people. You know, one of the most influential psychologists of this past century was a man named Carl, Dr. Carl Menninger, and he wrote the classic book, Whatever Became of Sin?, and in this book, he, he explains, he almost laments how the word sin has disappeared from our cultural vocabulary. Now, here's the thing. Menninger is not a Christ follower. And he's writing the book from the vantage point of a secular clinical psychiatrist. And here's what he writes in the first chapter of his book. He says, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. I mean, it was, it was a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described the central point in every civilized human being's life and lifestyle. But the word went away. It's almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? And then manager goes on in the book and, and, and he tries to explain what has happened. He says one of the things that happened is that in our culture, we became more concerned with crime and legality than sin and morality. 
And he says that more and more people in the social and psychological sciences have become uncomfortable with this idea of guilt and shame that's attached to sin. So we found new ways to explain it, new ways to excuse these ideas. We blamed it on bad parenting, or we began to replace sin with words like symptoms or sickness. We no longer refer to our actions as sinful, but instead we call them aggressive or self-destructive or alienating. But here's what he writes in a later chapter. He says, I, I believe there is sin which is expressed in ways which cannot be substituted under vertebral artifacts such as crime, disease, delinquency, deviancy. There is morality. There is unethical behavior. There is wrongdoing. And I hope to show that there is usefulness in retaining the concept and indeed the word sin, which now shows some signs of returning to public acceptance. I would like to help this trend along. What is he talking about here? What is he saying? He's saying, well, actually, there is. There is value in talking about sin. And maybe we shouldn't ignore the idea of ethics and morality of right and wrong. And then he goes on in the book to talk about how these are actually connected to mental and emotional well-being. Now, in case you're wondering, he wrote the book in 1973, right? So after 50 years, the idea of sin has not returned to public acceptance. Perhaps maybe in certain news outlets or social media algorithms otherwise. Um, but today, the day in which we live in, I don't know if you've noticed, but we are far more concerned about mental health than we are about moral health. And that's not to diminish the importance of mental health. But we ignore the reality that oftentimes these two concepts are inextricably linked. I mean, there are many people, so many people I talk to, who struggle with feelings of unworthiness. And these are often rooted in guilt and in shame for things that they've done. And oftentimes this compounds into self-hatred and depression and loathing. And what they need more than anything is actually it's grace, it's forgiveness, it's redemption. And perhaps a renewed sense of self-love could emerge from a, a divine understanding of Christ's love. See, the Bible's notion of original sin may not be as antiquated or irrelevant as it may seem. The prognosis may in fact be sin's infection, but the diagnosis may be grace abounding. Well, Paul says there is one more consequence of Adam's trespass. It says in verse 12 that death came into the world through sin. And that this death spread to all people because all sin. So, so before Adam's transgression, there was no death in the world, which is hard for us to imagine, right? There was no sickness. There was no suffering. It's, it might seem strange to us, but, but death is not our natural state as human beings. In fact, death is the unnatural state for human beings. This is perhaps why death is the great enemy. This is why we despise it so much. But when Adam transgressed, it says that sin entered into the world and death was right on its heels. Paul calls this the reign of death. Did you catch that in the text? So it's like death is on the throne. Death is large and it's in charge. I mean, we've heard a lot of bad press lately about the monarchy in England. Well, death, death is a most effective monarchy. Death kills 100% of people 100% of the time. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. 
And this death that is spoken of here in the text was, was not just physical death, but it also includes spiritual death. So because of Adam's transgression, because we are in this sphere of sin, we are in this sphere of death, we are spiritually cut off from God. We are dos- dislocated from him. This God who is the source of all love and of all life. And this, connect, this connection ultimately has eternal implications. So under Adam, we are part of a reign of death. Okay, so, so, so that's the first Adam. Let's talk about the last Adam today. Well, the first Adam responded to God's authority with disobedience. But Jesus, the last Adam, responded with obedience. Let's look at verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience... The men were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So so Jesus' life was actually marked by obedience. He lived with obedience. He died in obedience. In fact, the, the gospels actually show us just how the last Adam outshines the first Adam. Uh, we see this in the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in, in Luke chapter 4. I mean, after his baptism, you might know the story. Jesus was sent by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the reason why he was sent into the wilderness was to demonstrate, to prove that he was the faithful son who pleased the Father. And like the first Adam, when Jesus was in the wilderness, he was bombarded by Satan with these premature promises of glory. So he was enticed with offers of like uh, freedom from suffering and political enterprise and, and miraculous powers. But how did the last, res- the, the last Adam respond? Well, it says he responded with truth and he responded with defiance. And so then Satan slinked away defeated. But this was just the dress rehearsal ultimately for the climax of Jesus' story. Because as Paul says in verse 18, it was one act of righteousness that was the game changer for all of humanity. Let's look at that verse. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So this this one act of righteousness was in fact the cross of Calvary. It was the culmination of Christ's obedient life. We actually pick this up in another letter. We read in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. Here's what it says. It says, And Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient, note that word, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in obedience to the Father, he came and he dwelled among us. He walked in perfect obedience while he lived here on earth. And then he became obedient to the point of death. This was the fulfillment of his mission. This is the reason why he came. And this one act of righteousness, it says, became for us a free gift. A free gift. So we are given the free gift as opposed to the trespass. Well, what is this free gift that he's talking about? Well, this is perhaps where the comparison between the first Adam and the last Adam jumps ship. This is actually where Paul is very, very clear that they are actually not alike. There is asymmetry. You notice he says in verse 15, the free gift, it's not like the trespass. And then in verse 16, he says, the free gift is not like the result of the trespass. Well, what's the difference? Well, it has everything to do with the size and the scale and the scope of what Jesus did compared to Adam. And Paul is quick to point out that what Jesus did far outstretches what Adam did. Notice the repeat of the phrase, abounded, in verses 15 and 20. Notice the repeat of the phrase, much more, in verses 15 and 17. Paul's saying, listen, listen, what Jesus did 
was far greater. It was far better. It was far more extensive than anything that Adam ever did. I mean, Adam's trespass, it resulted in uh, condemnation, but Jesus' free gift buried it, absolutely buried it in an avalanche of grace. Adam's disobedience brought in a reign of death, but Jesus' obedience uh, and his, in his obedient death and his, his victorious resurrection, what happened? He defeated it. He dethroned it. He replaced it with a new monarch. Jesus canceled the reign of death. He, I mean, he is the ultimate canceler, right? He, the, the creator of a cancel culture that far outstrips all of them. He canceled death so that we might reign in life. We have abundant life in him and we have eternal life through him. Now, unless there be any confusion, I mean, Paul actually says that the law could never solve this problem. Because humanity is so messed up. The human condition is ruined. It's beyond repair. And as a matter of fact, sin actually entered into the world before the law. But what the law did was it actually just made sin more obvious. Paul says in verse 20 that the law came to increase the trespass. So the law made sin more explicit. You see, the law could count sin, but the law ultimately could not counter sin. And this increase in trespass, it might seem like a very real problem. It's like, okay, it's it's bad enough that we're sinful. But now the law shows up and it just points out very specifically how sinful we are. So it's, it's one thing that your parents hear you're sneaking out of bed. It's quite another thing for them to catch, your hand, catch you with your hand in the cookie jar after they've explicitly told you no more cookies. But this increase of sin, Paul says, it's no problem for the last Adam. Because his free gift far outmatches the trespass. Paul writes in verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, what's really interesting is, is Paul actually uses a word here that does not exist anywhere else in antiquity. You cannot find this Greek word that he's using here anywhere else in all the ancient writings. And some, some scholars actually believe that Paul probably created the word because he was trying to get his head around this concept, this mystery of just how extensive and expansive the grace of God actually is. So abounded all the more should actually be literally translated superabounded. Where sin increases, God's grace superabounds for us. And listen, some of you today, you actually need to hear this. Because you've, you've come to believe that you are somehow beyond forgiveness. You think that the things you've done are, are too horrible, too unimaginable, too repeated. And God would say to you this morning, listen, the free gift, it always outmatches your trespass. That where your sin has increased, the grace of God has superabounded. And I, and I wonder this morning, have you, have you opened that free gift? See, the thing about a gift is you actually have to receive it, right? You actually need to open it. This is why Paul talks so much about faith, right? In the first chapters of Romans, he talks about reminding us that, that faith is the catalyst for salvation. Faith is the catalyst for grace. We need to take, care, take hold of this free gift through faith. You need to receive it. Take hold of it. Place your complete trust in Jesus and faith for your life. You know, imagine like a friend of you know sends you a gift through Amazon. They send it to your door. And it's a good gift. Like, it's an expensive gift. It's a really, really nice gift, right? Something you can never, ever imagine ever purchasing for yourself. And they send you the receipt because, after all, they want you to know it's coming and they don't want it to get stolen by porch pirates, right? 
So you arrive home one home day, you know, home one day from work, and you walk, see it there by the side of the door, and you think, oh, it's a gift, right? And you walk into the house, and you ignore it. Because for some reason, you decide that you should leave it outside, because maybe you don't feel worthy of such a gift. Or maybe you're afraid what might happen if you, in fact, open this gift. So you don't touch it. You don't bring it inside. And you don't unwrap it. And, we, and weeks pass. I mean, it still sits there. And every day you walk by it, it sits there through sun and rain and snow, and pretty soon the box starts to sag and the labels on it start to fade. And deep down inside, you want to open this gift, but you're still kind of hesitant and you're still kind of afraid. And then one day, well, a porch pirate shows up. He's been checking out that box for weeks, right? He's thinking, is there something inside there? Why are they leaving there? Is this a joke? I'm going to take it anyway. And he snatches the box and he takes it home and he opens it up and he unwraps it and he opens it and looks inside and he says, wow, this is amazing. This is incredible. And he asks himself the question, why in the world would this person just leave their gift on the step? Why would this person not open up the gift? And maybe, friend, today, that's who you are. Maybe that's where you find yourself. And maybe what God is asking you to do today, and maybe what you need to do today, is to simply open up that gift. And allow God's grace to superabound over you. Because the thing about grace is grace is the gift that keeps on giving. It's something that we need to open up every single day, and it's something that will never disappoint. So let me ask you this morning, um, getting back to that first question. Who's going to be your type? Is your type going to be the old Adam? You know, the one of sin, the one of condemnation, the one of death? Or perhaps for you today, your type will be the new Adam. One of grace and justification and life abundant. Which of those two Adams would you love to spend the rest of your life with? You know, Crosspoint, today um, marks the beginning of Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday. Today we are entering into the climax of the Christian story in the Christian calendar. It is the culmination of the last Adam's obedience. This last Adam, the king of the whole world, rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey. And as he was riding towards Jerusalem... People spread their cloaks on the ground before him. Others cut up palm branches and laid it out on the ground before him to, to create a regal pathway for him as he approached this ancient city. And many people shouted, Blessed is he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Before he came to the city, he paused and he, he saw the future of this great city and he wept over the city. And then as he entered the city, he began his inevitable move towards the cross of Jesus Christ so that he might offer to us the free gift of himself. My hope and my prayer for each of us this week is that we would just be mindful of this free gift that was purchased for us through the obedience of his life. My hope is that this week we would read the Gospels that we would contemplate the final days of Christ's life on earth. That we would come together and reflect on Christ's death on Good Friday. And that we would make a very, very, very loud ruckus on Easter Sunday. 
and celebrate the new life in Christ. That's my hope and my prayer for us as we enter into Holy Week together as God's people. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. Let's pray. I give you an opportunity this morning to reflect who is your type? Which Adam do you want to spend the rest of your life with? I'll give you just a couple moments. Father, we thank you for sending your son into this world because you so love the world that you gave. And Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to the Father's will on our behalf. Thank you that you lived a life of obedience and you died in obedience for us. And that is amazing grace, Lord. We thank you. Today, we just together open that gift and receive it from you. We repent of our sins. We turn our faces towards life and to grace. And we receive from you a blank slate, a new beginning, right standing before you. And we rejoice in that. We worship you because of it. We thank you. And give us the courage this week, Lord, to continue to open that gift every single day as we celebrate Holy Week together and we celebrate you. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.